Welcome everybody to the speaker series at St. John's Lafayette Square. Uh, we're very happy to welcome you virtually today as we have our, a very special talk lined up from our guest, Sarah Stewart Johnson, who is here to talk with us about her work with Mars. Good morning, everyone. Thank you, Rob. I'm Clark Irvin. Thank you all so much for joining us. So I have always been fascinated by what I call the science of the heavens. And in particular, the prospect of life uh, on Mars. And who better to talk to us about these issues now that the nation is focused again on space exploration and with the current mission uh, to Mars than a leading scientist in this field right in our own backyard, namely Professor Sarah Stewart Johnson. Professor Johnson is a Provost's Distinguished Associate Professor of Planetary Science at Georgetown. Her research is driven by the underlying goal of understanding the presence and preservation of biosignatures within planetary environments. Her lab is also involved in the implementation of planetary exploration, analyzing data from current spacecraft, as well as devising new techniques for future missions. Her most recent book, The Sirens of Mars, was a New York Times editor's choice and it was also selected as one of the New York Times 100 most notable books of 2020. A former White House fellow, Professor Johnson earned a BA from Washington University in St. Louis, uh, another BA and an MA as a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford University and a PhD from MIT. With that, please join me in welcoming Professor Sarah Stewart Johnson. Sarah, thank you for being with us and over to you. Oh, thank you, Clark. Thank you, Rob. This is such a pleasure to be here. And let me just very quickly share these slides so you guys can see my presentation. Alrighty, hopefully, hopefully that will work for everyone. Um, so as, as Clark mentioned, I'm a planetary scientist and I just thought I would spend some time today talking to you guys about my very favorite subject, <laughs> um, which is the exploration of Mars and the search for life there. So, uh, here we are. So first I thought I would just take you on a quick tour of this just extraordinary planet, which is at once just incredibly familiar. It feels like a place that's so much like Earth, the kind of place you could just scrape your knee, right? But at the same time, it's just indescribably foreign. But I just wanted to show you some of the, some of the beautiful, incredibly high resolution images that we have coming back from this planet, just so you can get a sense of just how wondrous it is. And then I thought I'd talk to you a little bit about um, my own journey getting into Mars exploration, a little bit about the history of the search for life on Mars, and then all that really exciting science that we have going on today. Um, so just to start off, this is a an image of the Nambib Dune. This is a flanking Mount Sharp, which is this huge mountain. It rises higher than Mount Rainier above Seattle. It's in the middle of Gale Crater, and it's what we're exploring right now with the Curiosity Rover, um, which is a mission that I'm working on. And then here we can also see these orbital images. So this is a plateau. This is in the chaotic terrain of our chaos. And you've got these blocky fractured regions and they've formed after the collapse of these heavily cratered uplands. 
you kind of get a sense of, of these extraordinary features. Like these are cones that were formed by boiling water that was bursting through hot lava billions of years ago, just west of Amazonas Planitia. And these gorgeous dunes, these layers in Noctis Labyrinthus, you can see these amazing patterns that these alien features have been created by the wind. And then here is an ancient river delta that's entering that's entering into Jezero Crater. And, and just bookmark this one for a second, because we're going to come back to this in a minute, because it's the site of the Perseverance rover mission. So I started off um, as this kid in Kentucky. I grew up there where I was born and raised and was always interested, I guess, in these, these questions, these exploring, looking into these dark places, trying to understand some of the mysteries around us. And this really exciting thing happened when I was finishing up high school, getting ready to go off to college, is after 20 years, we had no Mars missions from the late 70s until the late 1990s. But in 1997, this little, you know, suitcase-sized rover, the Pathfinder rover, landed on Mars on the 4th of July. And, and we were back, we were back exploring this planet. And um, in this really extraordinary way, like I went off to college at Washington University in St. Louis, and there was a professor and I'd read this article about this professor Ray Arvidson and, and I knew he was on the campus and I went and I signed up for a class with him and I ended up working in his laboratory and, and he was a Mars scientist and he had worked on this Pathfinder mission. And it was just sort of my start into, into this incredible field. And then when I went off to graduate school, I got my own chance to work on the very first mission. I worked on the Spirit and Opportunity rovers. I went out to the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California, and it was just incredible. We were in these, these big, huge, darkened rooms and projected just huge and beautifully on the walls would be these images of the surface of Mars that, you know, human eyes had never seen before. Like this is right as we got up to the edge of Endurance Crater. Um, and you can see these ethereal dunes down in the bottom and, and there's actually layering all around. So we could start to read the sedimentary rock record. The history of the planet was laid down like pages in a book um, in these layers. And I got to be part of this mission, it felt like I had shot through right to the center of um, planetary exploration. And it was just wonderful. It informed what I ended up working on my PhD thesis, trying to understand how sulfur, um, sulfur dioxide and hydrogen sulfide also could have driven some early greenhouse warming as addition to carbon dioxide. I did all these models trying to understand how we could get these sulfur rich rocks that we saw in these terrains at Meridiani Planum there with the Opportunity Rover. And then now I have the opportunity to run my own laboratory just right across town there at Georgetown University. I ran a biosignatures lab. We, we spend our time searching for traces of life and I get to work with students and I get to work on missions, which is really exciting. But I first, before I get into that, I wanted to, to show you some of these fun pictures. We, we tend to go off to these places, these extreme environments, these planetary analog sites where we can 
test our ways of looking where we can learn how to better look for life, how to better design instrumentation, how to interpret data, places where life is often very lean. And, and sometimes these places like the Atacama Desert, you can see they have these similarities uh, in terms of mineralogy or in terms of climate conditions or, or similarities to what Mars is like now or what it might have been like early in its history. Because these are two planets that were much, much more similar around the time that life got started here on Earth. And it really begs this question of like, did life actually get started on Mars as well? Because we know that it used to be a habitable environment, that there used to be liquid water on its surface, at least periodically, and that it was warm enough and wet enough. And it also had the sort of fundamental constituents, the elements that life requires, and even the organic building blocks um, from which at least life as we know it is built. Um, and so our planets have taken this really different path, and I'll talk about that here in a minute. Um, but we find out about that by sending rovers and landers and flybys and orbiters, and we have all of these missions that we've been able to draw data from and really understand um, what's going on at the surface. So here's a little curiosity selfie. And we get opportunities to send these missions. We get those opportunities every 26 months when the planets align on the same side of the sun. Um, and so even from early, early days, even the ancients knew that there was something special about Mars. You know, there were these five wanderers up in the sky is what they called planets, planetas in Greek. And they, they knew that they moved in separate ways than the background of the fixed stars. And of those, there was just one that had a distinctive color. Um, but it wasn't just the red color of Mars that made it special. It also had this very intriguing pattern where um, it would go into this retrograde motion. And so it would look like, you know, for a couple of years, it would sort of move one way against the backdrop of those fixed stars. But then for six to eight weeks, every couple of years, it would seem to reverse course and sort of backpedal against the zodiac before resuming its normal, its normal direction. And from that, Plato had even concluded that the planet's must have souls for, for what else could these retrograde motions be if not just expressions of free will. Um, and so there was a time that much of the literate world actually believed that life had already been discovered on Mars in the form of these engineered canals. Um, and so there was a, a period that started in the 1800s, like over in Italy. And there was um, a famous astronomer called Giovanni Schiaparelli who had um, been up on his rooftop observatory in 1877. And he had started to see that the features like that he was seeing with his telescope looked unlike the existing British maps at the time. And he, he drew these beautiful maps of Mars. He drew in all of these names from, from the Bible, from Herodotus, from ancient civilizations. You know, there were all these lost world rivers that had never been found on Earth that he put up on Mars. And it's part of the reason that we have such an evocative map of Mars today. But he also saw these things, and this isn't actually a map of his, but there were these linear features and he couldn't quite figure out what they were, but he sort of assumed at first that these must just be channels, you know, like, um, you know, just natural waterways. 
But this word canale in Italian, which means channel, was sort of brought into the wider world. I mean, there's a little bit of debate about how much this played into the, the reasoning that these became associated as engineered canals, but it translated into canal. Um, and so this sort of took the circuitous path. It was first populated in France by this uh, really eccentric astronomer called Camille Flammarion. And then in his 18, early 1890s book, found its way into the hands of this man named Percival Lowell, who was a, a textile fortune error. He had um, gone to Harvard, done this customary grand tour. He came back home and he got presented a copy of this book. And he just was electrified by this idea that there might be canals on Mars. And when he set up his own observatory in Arizona and started making observations, this is one of his maps, he saw hundreds of them, you know, and then some of them were in doubles and he just thought this entire world had been taken over by this, you know, benevolent oligarchy that was bringing water from the melting pools to irrigate this desert planet. Um, and so this really took hold of the world. One of these uh, amazing sort of examples was even as, as late as the 1920s, the US Army and Navy had been convinced to shut down their operations for two full days as, as part of what became known as the, the big listen. Um, because of course, radio is also becoming very much in vogue and, and these radio waves, even the founders of radio, the inventors, Tesla and Marconi had ideas about maybe radio being used as a way to communicate with this intelligent civilization on Mars. And this, I love, this is just down on Connecticut Avenue, right where Kramer Books is these days. But this whole miraculous, these devices were set up to try to record radio signals from Mars. Um, and of course, nothing intelligible came out of this whole effort, but it's just, um, it was amazing, kind of that level of coordination. Um, and then I love this image as well. So planetary science eventually sort of fell into a bit of a backwater. This idea of a civilized Mars fell away. There were especially European astronomers pushing back on this idea, suggesting that, you know, maybe these lines weren't actually canals, maybe the eye just had a way of connecting these distinct features, you know, that weren't actually connected, but, but putting lines where there weren't actually any there. But astrophysics was also coming on big in the first half of the 1900s with Einstein, his theories of relativity and, and planetary science kind of got relegated for a while. But one of the few acting planetary scientist in the 1950, Adun Dufus, he was a Frenchman and he was the son of an aeronaut and he himself got these ideas about going up um, into the stratosphere with a, with a little telescope trying to get spectral observations of water vapor on the surface of Mars, trying to really understand if there was enough water there to potentially support life. And I just think it's extraordinary the lengths to which these scientists would go. Um, so there's lots more I could say about the history, but I wanted to zoom quickly to 1962, which even though this idea kind of fallen away that Mars might be filled with a civilization, these features, these linear features, this kind of cobwebbing on the surface, these hubs and spokes, you can still see them. This is the planning map that was used by um, NASA in the 1960s for the very first Mars mission, which was a flyby mission, Mariner 4 was what it was called. And you can see here, these are the images it was going to take across the surface of Mars as it swooped by 
and sent these back to Earth. So, of course, when these first images came in, there was so much anticipation. They were little bits of data. It's kind of, they were strung out like pearls on a necklace, these little packets of data coming back. And it was taking so long for them to be reassembled by these very early computers that some of the engineers that were working there, they, they started doing this giant color by numbers where they printed these, uh, these, these data out on these thin strips of paper and lined them up and started coloring them with pastels to really reconstruct these images. Um, but what those images actually showed was something very disappointing. So they showed that the surface of Mars was covered with craters, which was just completely unexpected. It looked like the surface of the lifeless moon. And it had big implications. It meant that there were no plate tectonics. There was no planetary resurfacing of any kind. You know, there wasn't water that was rushing across and wearing down these craters. I mean, we would have had the same number of impacts. So again, with a thick atmosphere, some of those would have burned up. But we've had a lot of impacts here on Earth, but so many of them have been erased as we've sort of swallowed our planet's surface and as, as erosion has happened. But it just... It just looked like the moon. And it was um, it was just this kind of moment of reckoning. And, and the New York Times even declared that Mars was likely a dead planet as a result of these images. And so this was sort of a, a nadir, I'd say, of the last century in the search for life. But fortunately, not everyone lost hope. This is a picture of a young Carl Sagan. Um, and so one of the things that I love that he did was he immediately started um, collecting these images at, at similar resolution at a thousand meters a pixel. And, and he looked at these images of Earth that had been taken by these early weather satellites like Nimbus and Tyros, and he said, look, we're invisible. Moscow's invisible. New York City is invisible. All of our great big, you know, things that we would think we would have left a huge impact on this planet, but we're invisible from space. And, and even at an order of magnitude greater, 100 meters a pixel, you know, the sort of resolution of the pictures that were taken by the Gemini and the Apollo astronauts. We were also, you really had to understand what you were looking for to see our own presence of life here on our own planet. And so more missions followed. So in the 1970s, the first orbital mission, and it was great drama. There was a huge dust storm that had encircled Mars at the time. And slowly, after a few months, the dust began to clear. And you see these, these little dots poking out. And it was, again, perplexing and enigmatic. Mars was a smaller planet. You know, it had less heat of accretion. It was further from the sun. There was just this idea that it would, it would not have a lot of heat and a lot of geologic features the sorts of things that would cause huge mountains, but that turns out exactly what those are, giant volcanoes. Um, and following that mission, we went in the 1970s with the Viking landers. I always love showing this picture. So this is not actually <laughs> um, correctly coded. So this was a picture that was released at the very early moments when these mission images were just coming back. And you can see there's a blue sky on Mars, but the sky is really more the color of butterscotch. It's, um, it's not blue, but this was miscalibrated when we, again, were just kind of expecting to see ourselves. I think there was an idea that because the atmosphere was thinner, the sky might be a 
darker blue, but this idea that the sky would be so filled with dust as we know it today, that orange red dust that's um really it's 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 like a red flower that cakes the surface and it gets pushed up into the atmosphere. It's, it's the size of cigarette smoke, those incredibly fine, fine particles that have been whittled down over the years and years of aeolian erosion. Um, but this mission, these Viking missions, there were two of them, and they had the, the very first life detection experiments, what were billed as the greatest experiments in the history of science. And, and those came back empty um, in the sense that most of everyone that was looking at the results concluded, even though there were some really strange um, signals that it that that you know something like chemical oxidation must have been going on and then the there wasn't evidence of life at least life in terms of metabolism that so many folks were hoping to see um and then after that again we had that 20 years after that last radio wave cycled back from the the surface of mars we just went into this period of kind of dormancy um but finally in the late 1990s we started sending missions again and these extraordinary things you know moving beyond the visual mapping and the infrared looking for magnetic signals trying to understand minerals and topography using lasers all kinds of things but this is um an image of Mount Olympus Mons, which is just this extraordinarily high mountain. Again, just this escarpment here alone is higher than the surface of Ezerist. We started getting this exquisite resolution of what this planet was like. Um, and everything, there were just so many blind alleys and twists and turns and surprises, especially as we look back at the last couple decades of Mars exploration. This again is one of my, my favorite, this is what we call blueberries on the um, opportunity team. When that mission touched down, the surface was littered with these, these perfectly spherical little, little balls of, of hematite. And it was so strange trying to, to understand what these were. It looked like the sort of surface that fled Funstone would slip on if we weren't careful. Um, so again, just like very exciting, interesting. These were concretions that were formed in the shallow subsurface by groundwater interactions, but just really surprising. You know, again, here are those, those craters we saw from those 1965 images. But we then went back to Mars, you know, with these orbital missions, and we saw these ancient river valleys, features that had to be carved into the geology by the presence of liquid water. So again, a big paradigm shift. Um, with the Viking missions, you know, we, we searched the soil, this was the arm, we sampled and, and we didn't find any organic molecules. So these are the building blocks of life as we know it, these carbon-based molecules. And, and there should have been at least some, you know, from these abiotic sources, you know, they rain down from, from comets. There's, a, there's more on the moon than we found on the surface of Mars. And again, that was just so incredibly perplexing. How could they not be there? But then we went back in 2008 with the Phoenix mission and, and we discovered that there were these oxychlorine species, these perchlorate minerals that were just, you know, incredibly reactive. And so when we heated up these molecules with these gas chromatograph mass spectrometers that we have been using as a tool for space exploration, the signals would, would vanish because these molecules are so incredibly reactive. And we now have found lots of organics on the surface of Mars. 
Um, so this is opportunity looking at these sedimentary rocks. We found these very distinctive minerals back in the early 2000s that suggested that this environment had been formed by water, but that water was incredibly acidic, the sort of pH of battery acid, very, very challenging for, for life. But then we went back with the Curiosity rover, which landed in 2012, and, and we found these soft gray mudstones. And, and this kind of water was the pH neutral water that these deposits formed in. You know, the, the PI of the mission even went in front of the press and said, you know, if you've been on Mars billions of years ago, this is the kind of water you could have drank. And so we've become, we've just had so many sort of back and forth. And, and here, <laughs> here we've gone now that we are moving beyond what was our big strategy for the longest time, follow the water. Let's find water on Mars because water seems to be a common thread through so much of the life we have here on Earth. All of the life has water at some part of its life cycle. But we found the water, we found the water again and again and again, <laughs> like it's in the polar caps, it's in hydrated minerals, it's in subsurface, it's, we've even found the sub, like the lake beneath the South Polar layer terrain on Mars, 12 miles wide. I mean, it's just so exciting to imagine drilling into that subsurface brine. There's so much water on Mars. Then we move to the strategy of exploring habitability. And now finally, back after you know years since those Viking missions of actually seeking the signs for life. And so this is going to swing us back to Jezero Crater, which is where we started with the beginning of the talk, this beautifully preserved river delta that's, um, that you can see this is the river channel that once entered this crater. And Perseverance landed on February 18th. Isn't this an extraordinary image that was caught by one of the, the orbital missions? You can see it descending on its parachute. And it's landed right here. This is just showing these are different minerals like carbonates, for instance, up here. These are sort of chalky minerals where we might find life. There are so many interesting targets. And so we're out here on the mafic floor and we're gonna go up, I mean, the, the community, the, the, the mission team is going to explore up into this exquisitely preserved ancient river delta. And it's, this is a place that we think used to be filled with water. And, and there's even a catastrophic channel where a flood must have broken through billions of years ago, where this water all drained out of the lake. But this is the Perseverance rover. It looks very much like Curiosity, built on the very same chassis. It's got a slightly different set of instruments, but 23 cameras, this incredible turret. You see this, this sampling arm here. This thing is like a big outstretched lawnmower. It's just incredibly heavy, but it's designed to collect samples to bring back to the surface of Earth to, to explore, to look for biosignatures. And I'll just make a quick note about its sidekick ingenuity, this tiny little helicopter. Mark your calendars, it looks like in April, we're gonna see the first flights, the first powered flight on another planet. And um, this could really, this is really a technology demonstration that could change the way we think about exploration going forward. Um, but the point of this mission and why there's that huge arm is because uh, it's the, the Perseverance rover is kicking off this really breathtakingly ambitious campaign to return these samples of Mars to Earth. 
And it's going to take three different missions to do this. Perseverance will spend at least the next two years exploring the crater, and it may even have an extended mission where it goes up over the crater's edge and off to new hunting grounds for, for samples. Um, then there will be a fetch rover that comes and loads these samples, these carefully collected little samples. They're all about the size of a pen light or a cigarette, piece of chalk. Um, and they'll be put into an ascent vehicle, sent up to orbit where they'll be grabbed, and a third mission will bring them back to Earth, um, hopefully sometime in the 2030s. Um, and this is what the cache looks like. And so I think the current idea is to collect 10 from Jezero Crater, but collect them in duplicate and then go off to explore. So leave 10 there in, in Perseverance that's collected in Jezero Crater as, as, you know, to make sure mission objectives have been met, but then take 10 and collect new samples as a couple of years go on and, and the rover continues to explore potentially outside of the crater. Um, so when we get these back, and I'm so hoping that my lab might be one of the labs that has the opportunity to really look at these samples, is to search for ancient biosignatures, like traces of life that could be preserved in these ancient rocks. Um, and there are all kinds of things you can look for, you know, certain patterns in the molecular weights of fatty acids and other organic molecules. You can look for biotextures, even certain minerals can be indicative of, of biology. Um, but one thing, and I'll say just two words about this if I have time, is, is one of the things that we've been working hard in my lab um, and a team that I'm leading called the Laboratory for Agnostic Biosignatures is, is been trying to develop these, these ways of looking for life, not necessarily just sort of life as we know it, but also potentially life that could be really different from ours, looking for indicators of life that don't necessarily presuppose the same biochemistry or the same underlying molecular framework as life here on Earth that could have had a separate genesis on the planet of Mars. Um, and I think that if, as you look, especially back at the history of exploration, you see so many times we've sort of assumed that, that Mars would be similar to Earth, only to find that it's, it's very, very different. And so this has been a really exciting area of my own work um, here at Georgetown, looking for things like chemical complexity or, you know, certain unexpected elements of, say, isotopes or, or um, you know, accumulations of elements within compartments that are isolated from the environment, things that wouldn't necessarily even presuppose that that life would have to be carbon-based, you know, trying to think expansively, trying to almost imagine a color that we've, we've never seen. Um, but just to say, it's, it's just such an exciting time for Mars exploration. For so long, exploration was dominated by NASA and, and the Russians and now the Soviets, but, um, you know, the European Space Agency, the Japanese, like all kinds of folks. And recently, the Indians have jumped in and we might even see private companies. And this year, Perseverance was joined, our, our Mars invasion in February we also had the arrival of the first Mars mission from the Arab world. This is a mission called HOPE, which is in orbit, doing all kinds of fantastic measurements. This is the Chinese mission, Tian-1, um, which will touch down a, a rover and a lander very soon, um, probably in May or June. Um, and with that, I'll just end. I thought I would show you this picture of this beautiful blue sunset on Mars. They just, the sunsets on Mars glow in this eerie incandescent way. And, I don't know if you're interested in learning more. Oh, you can see it going down here. 
Um, and I'm going to have my last slide because I want to make sure there's plenty of time for questions. But I have written this book, this book about Mars, and it's really trying to capture so many of these things that would never find expression on the pages of scientific journey journals about just our human exploration, the human story that's, um, that's kind of part of this whole endeavor of reaching out and yearning. For, um, for the search, but let me in there. I see Clark's face, which makes me think I might have gone over. But let's uh, <laughs> let's take some questions. I'd love to take questions. <laughs> Perfect, Sarah. That was fascinating. Thank you so much. Just wonderful. So let me begin the questioning with where you ended or near the end of your talk. So you say there are the conditions for life as we know it, or at least there have been. Um, but the question is, is there do you think there is intelligent life, you know, given the vastness of space and how odd it would be that we are the only intelligent species in the whole universe? What is your bet as to whether signs of intelligent life will ultimately be found? Oh, I'm so hopeful for that, Clark. I mean, you think about the numbers, there's such extraordinary numbers out there. I mean, we have 40 billion planets in our own Milky Way that could be, you know, these planets or all these places that might support life and they're belted with moons and moonlets you know it's not just planets we're thinking about as targets for exploration we have Enceladus and Europa Titan places in our own solar system that we're we're looking at as well but for intelligent life you know I think that you know just out there somewhere not not here in our solar system but somewhere I'm just so so very hopeful that those numbers would add up to something but it's just it's just one of these things. And I think part of why I'm so focused even on microbial life, simple life, which is kind of what we, what we hope to find on Mars is, and the same sort of life that dominated so very much of our own history is that, you know, that's something from nothing, you know, did that happen once or did that happen time and again? And, you know, I think that I'm a restless sort of person. And if we could find that here in our own backyard, you know, if lightning is sort of striking twice and we have a separate genesis here in our own solar system, I think it would really suggest that the universe is just a, a hatchery of life. Absolutely. What do you think is the prospect of the time frame for human exploration of Mars in particular? <laughs> this has been so interesting. It's always been something that's like 30 years in the future, like cold fusion. It's always been there. But I will say, so if I think about that, there are these huge technological challenges. You know, the radiation environment is incredibly punishing. It's a, it's a long time. Getting to the moon's easy. A couple days there, a couple days back, a couple weeks, you're home. Business trip, right? But getting to <laughs> Mars, you've got to wait until those planets come back together on the same side of the sun to get home. And so it's just a tricky thing. But when you think about where we were in 1957 before Sputnik, like with nothing, and then in 12 years, we had people on the moon. And I think that the leap that we would need to take, the technological leap now from the moon to Mars is, is much smaller than that. So I think the stage is set for rapid progress. If we, if we choose to, to make it, and you know whether that's an international coalition that's really led by science, whether that's you know disruption from private industry sort of coming in and like doing you know human exploration on their own, whether that's a new space race with China, like I don't know how it will actually manifest, but I think that that we could get there relatively soon if we had just a really sustained big effort. One of the questions is whether you'd feel comfortable talking about your faith in connection with the work that you do. 
Oh, that is a good question. Um, so I, as a planetary scientist, you know, I think I've always been really drawn to these great deep mysteries about our existence, about our, our own place in the universe. And, um, and I think that science can certainly inform those sorts of things. And I think that's part of why I've been so drawn to these kinds of questions in science. So I think that, you know, everyone needs to, you know, there, there are limits of science as well. And um, when it comes to just sort of these big things, I think there is a way in which, you know, you could look at my work and kind of see it in some ways through a sort of spiritual lens. Like I think that, that draw, that sort of yearning and seeking to understand where we are and, and this idea that we wouldn't necessarily be bound before and after by an abiotic universe, that there could be this continuity of life, whether, I mean, we are these finite creatures, we have these ephemeral existences, like we know that the earth will one day go away, our sun will explode, you know, and, and just the sense that life life as a phenomenon would be throughout the universe would be something that would would persist past our finite existence is something I'm really I'm really drawn to um but yeah but I sort of think about this being a, a bit of a content a continuum there you know sort of where these questions that are at the core of my work I feel like are very spiritual in nature Right. Well, you touched on this. Can you talk about the role of the private sector nowadays in space exploration? I assume that you think that's a good thing. And what should the balance be, do you think, between the private sector's role, the government's role, the United States international collaboration, as you mentioned? Oh, yeah, that's a great question as well. Um, well, I will say this. I think it's it's sort of a wild west out there. You know, the, the policy instruments that we have to think about space exploration and you know, uh, just a whole bevy of issues are mostly outdated. They are not thinking about, you know, it's, it's very much in a national framework, not just can you find an island and launch and be governed by that island's laws, or can you just have these, you know, so many questions, space junk, space mining, you know, is it like, do we have a, a moral responsibility if we're going to send people in space to bring them home safely? Mm -hmm. You know, there are just so many, so many questions. I mean, you look at, you know, these, this, this partnership sort of between NASA and private industry, and it really has done some extraordinary things. Um, I think that we, we do need people that are really thinking about those intersections of, of science and technology and also international affairs. You know, uh, we've got a lot of students at Georgetown, unfortunately, that are interested in some of these. And I'm glad, I hope some of these students will go on and help us really think carefully about how to do that, how to do that right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, another question, has the James Webb Telescope had an impact on the search for life uh, in Mars or in the universe? Oh, James Webb, we'll hopefully get it soon. <laughs> so anyway, these huge telescopes are incredibly helpful. And even thinking past James Webb, like there are all these concepts for, for other kind of enormous space-based telescopes that could really just you know, have a paradigm shift in our search for exoplanets. Um, and so that's really... Uh, again, an area that's that's sort of exploded in the last decade or two. And I think that these tools are incredibly helpful. 
Um, you know, and you may think that these worlds are so, they're so, so far away. And so what could we possibly know about them? Like maybe we'll understand a little bit about their atmosphere, maybe what gases are there, but can we really, can we really definitively do life detection based on this kind of information? And they just seem so like, I mean, they're just kind of aberrations of light at the very edge of our grasp. But, but I think back, like even a century ago, that's exactly what Mars seemed like, you know, it was before, I mean, the idea of traveling there just seemed like science fiction. And the idea that we'd ever really know it intimately was almost preposterous, but that was a human lifetime ago, you know? And so I sort of think, you know, there are these extraordinary distances and the universe has this speed limit and it's just painfully slow and we can't go faster than light. But, you know, some of these worlds are just a few light years away. And maybe there are these teeny, tiny little spacecraft that weigh a gram that we could power in some way to, I don't know, there are just all kinds of possibilities. Um, mm -hmm. But yes, I'm a big fan of, of big space telescopes. I just wish that we can get delayed as much as <laughs> Right. <laughs> Another question, could we cover Mars and many other planets in our system with robotic rovers for a fraction of the cost of putting humans in yeah. space? We absolutely could. We absolutely can. Um, and, um, you know, if we're just doing sort of a, a cost benefit analysis of, of scientific value, you know, I think that there's just so much that's possible with robotic exploration. Um, you know, and there, there are even some folks in the community that are pushing hard against, you know, don't even have these flagship missions and 12 opportunity class rovers and send them all over Mars and we'll learn so much, you know, but it's, um, I think, so the thing is like human exploration, I think it's, it's about more than just the science, right? I think it, it has been, you know, we didn't go to the moon just to learn about moon rocks, you know? And I think there is, something, I mean, they're political, economic, they're all these like social science type things, but then there's also this like thing in us that drives us to exploration and to like really pushing the frontiers. And I think that's a big part of it as well. Two final questions. Just the other day, the president um, has announced that he's going to nominate Bill Nelson, former senator, former astronaut, as the new head of NASA. What do you think about that? Oh, oh, <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess is uh, yeah. I think he'll 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 be great. You know, like he's got a, a, a deep history of, of space exploration. I uh, I won't say who it is, but I sort of had somebody in mind that I thought he might pick that I thought would have been just such a dynamic change. And and also, you know, like we've had. I, I would just love to see a woman run NASA at some point. You know, we've never had a female administrator, and I just think that. This person in particular, I think, would have been so fantastic. But, um, but you know, one day I hope that we do actually get um, get you know some some a woman in that position. But I think that Bill Nelson, you know, he's a very solid space supporter. He's you know very close with Biden. I think that they'll have a great working relationship. And speaking of that, uh, as the final question, women in in science and planetary science in particular, it's a rarity still, right, Sarah? And can you talk a little bit about that and uh, I assume that you talk to students about that and try to interest more young women in, in science and in space exploration in particular. I do, yeah. So we still only have about 15% of, of folks working on NASA missions that are that are women. And, and, you know, it's just one of these things where these are hard questions and we need 
the best and the brightest. We need to be pulling from everyone. But you know, like I think it's not just it's not just women. It's like underrepresented minorities. Like we need so much to diversify this field and to make it you know welcoming and home for all of these people. And again, we just need to be able to be sourcing talent from the full population to really go after these these huge questions, but, um, but things are getting better. Things are getting better, but I, I feel that it's very incumbent on me as you know, now that I'm in a position as a professor to just do whatever I possibly can to sort of help bring everyone and make sure that it's a place that doesn't just look like the Elks club, you know, all walks of life that are coming into this field. Well, Sarah, this has been fascinating. I wish that I could take your class at Georgetown. I bet I speak for every parishioner who's on this call. Thank you so much for being with us. And we look forward to keeping in touch with you. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) Take care. Okay, you too.